please turn the pages of your Bibles to the New Testament letter to the Galatians. Galatians chapter 5. And we will read from verse 1 to verse 12. Galatians chapter 5, from verse 1 to verse 12. And it reads, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision... Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who will be be justified by the law. You are fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus... Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven levers the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsaid to you would emasculate themselves. Strong words. I, I love this verse where the Apostle Paul encourages them, well, he raises a question. You are running, he says. Not just running, but you are running well. You are running well. And he asks them, who hindered you? Running the race. Let me ask you this question. And I put this on the WhatsApp group. What would you need to do or to keep doing to finish the Christian race? What would you need? What would you need to do or keep doing in order to finish the Christian race. You see, someone had come in amongst the Galatian believers and sown confusion, had caused trouble, had upset the congregation to such an extent that it forced the Apostle Paul to write this letter, and we're thankful for it. But what's happening here with the Apostle is nothing new. The church, right from the beginning, in fact, that's why we have some of these letters. The existence of these letters were addressing certain issues amongst the various congregations in the first church. It's nothing new. From troublemakers, people continue to live in sin. But one of the biggest problems they had Again and again, and one of the biggest things that the New Testament letters focus upon was false teachers and false teaching. Some of us today 
You know, say, why is it that we, we talk about some of these guys on TV and false teachers? Why do we focus on it? Because the Bible does. And because it's so important. What you consider to be little or not significant actually has destroyed many congregations, has shipwrecked many people's faith. Some of you who are you know, familiar with us here at Vulcan Baptist Church may even throw the accusation against us that we're very finicky about doctrine, very finicky about theology. Some of you even in exasperation say, well, which is right then? You know, how can you always be so precise? We must strive to be precise. And more than anything, we must get the gospel right. Well, how do you know? Because again and again, the Bible tells us what the gospel is. It leaves us in no doubt. But yet, amazingly and sadly, many people get it wrong. And here's the problem. If you get the gospel wrong, you remain under the wrath of God. So it's vitally important for your eternity to get the gospel right. So the apostle Paul said to them, man, you guys are running well. Who hindered you? But like I said, this is nothing new from the Gnostic controversies of the first couple of centuries in the early church to the questioning and the attack upon the deity of Christ. Thank God for people like Athanasius. Cool name, by the way. If you ever want to name your summon name, you can, you can thank me later. Athanasius, fantastic name. But a brilliant man. Thank God for people like him who stood. You'll hear the phrase, Athanasius Contramondo. He stood against the world. He stood against people who attacked the deity of Christ. Thank God for people like this. We stand on their shoulders and many other heresies and false teachings that could have destroyed the church. It's nothing new. I've repeated that three times. We continue to experience it to today. I'm not Catholic bashing. Please understand me. But there's something very fundamental to what Catholics hold or Catholicism that takes a wrecking ball to the very heart of the gospel. We believe you are justified, or when I say we, I speak of evangelicals. Evangelicals are those who believe in the inerrancy and infallibility of the word of God. And that is authoritative for the Christian in our faith and practice. It's one of our main five points that we have um, as a church. We believe in the authority of God's word over the Christian. We define everything by God's word. Not by man. Whereas in Catholicism, the Pope speaks ex cathedra. You know what that means? That means he speaks from his throne, he speaks, and whatever he says is equal to God's word. You know what's sad? Many Catholics don't even know that. But one of the things that's fundamental to their belief is this. As evangelical Christians, we believe in salvation by faith alone. That alone is significant. 
Because a, a Catholic priest will say to you, we believe in salvation by faith. But if you say alone, they'll go, uh-uh. You see, you've got to do the sacraments and other things as well. And that's why you find there are a lot of people, and even to this day, they go to certain shrines, certain places of devotion, and they scorch themselves. They do acts of service that are not required by scripture. Because they believe they can gain something. They can carry favor with God. Not biblical. And many of the things they believe are what we call extra biblical. In other words, they are outside of scripture. Like the Immaculate um, um, Birth of Mary. Everyone thinks that's talking about the virgin birth of Christ. No, they believe that Mary herself was virgin born. Show me scripture? Nope. Ex-cathedra. Another one, which there are groups in welcome of this, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be charitable because any one of us could fall into error. And some, some of the error is so close to the truth that unless you can see the gaping, the massive gap of what may seem as nuanced to some people is actually a massive black hole that can swallow a person up. One of them is, some of you have not heard of it, some of you have before, because I've mentioned it once or twice before. The Hebrew Roots Movement. Part of this, now there's various forms of it, but one of the central things is, is the belief that we Christians have lost our Jewishness. Now here's the thing, is there something true about there's a Jewishness to our faith? Yes. You see, it's so close to the truth, yet it's so far from the truth. They also believe observance of their Torah. Now, you need to understand these terms. The word Tanakh is what the Jews call the Old Testament, the whole body of the Old Testament. Then, to, to show the difference between the first five books, it's called the Torah, the book of the law. And they believe we need to obey that still today. That's one of the reasons why Galatians was written. There are many other religions as well who believe by your works you appease God. By how good you are. Muslims, well, at the end of the day, God will weigh how many good things you've done against the bad stuff you've done. And if that outweighs that, then you're okay. How do you know? But the Christian is the man or woman who can place their confidence in the person and the finished work of Christ. And in that alone. You see, again and again, the New Testament letters, and, and this, this is what Paul is building up to from all that we've been seeing in Galatians thus, thus far, is that the Christian is to move from immaturity to maturity. And we've seen this, especially from Galatians chapter 3, verse um, 15 to chapter 4, verse 7. You can't receive all this wealth. While behaving like a nine-year-old. Imagine I go to my son Moses and I'm like, son, here you go, 100 million rand. What do you think he's going to do with that? You must be equipped to handle all this wealth. To fully enjoy all the blessings that we have in Christ. 
And Paul has a go at the Galatians about this as well. Saying, listen, there was a time for this. But all of that was pointed to something greater. And you need to grow up. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it says, listen, it talks about the Gentiles that the cross is a stumbling block, right, for the Gentiles because they, they pursue wisdom and philosophy. Is there something wrong in seeking wisdom? No. But when you seek wisdom, that's according to how you see wisdom, it's a problem. But concerning the Jews, he said, the Jews, it says the cross is a stumbling block for them. Do you know why? Because they were seeking deliverance thinking that God will just repeat the exodus in exactly the same way. And there's nothing with them seeking deliverance. There's nothing with them thinking God... The problem was, they wanted God to do it their way. The way they understood it. And God went, nah, I'm God. I'm doing it this way. And they missed it. They missed it. And that's why also the letter to the Hebrews was written. There's no way back to Jerusalem. To the earthly Jerusalem. Don't go back there. We are of the Jerusalem above. You see, in that letter, and there's so much correlation to a lot of things that Paul has written, hence why some people believe Paul wrote it, but that's another argument to debate for another day. Right? Don't ask me what I stand, because I know nothing. But the thing is this. In Hebrews, it talks about the people having been enlightened, received the sacraments, etc., etc., tasted of the spirits and all of that. But the problem was, you know, they were still placing their hope and faith in the things that were pointed to Christ while rejecting the blessing that came from Christ himself. So the writer or the preacher of Hebrews says, hey, Jesus is greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than the high priestly line. He's the greater temple. He's the greater sacrifice. The blood of lambs and goats cannot cleanse the conscience. And he makes the point, if you keep holding on to these things, he says in chapter 10, you are trampling again the blood of Christ. In other words, it's an affront, it's an insult to the cross of Christ. Should you still try to achieve righteousness by your own means or by the old system. It's like imagine paying off your bond. Imagine this month coming up, June, you've got your last bond payment. And the first of June, you make your last bond payment. Boom, done. Finish the claw, yeah? Would it make sense to keep going back to your bank and saying, Can I keep paying? Your bank manager would think you're mad. He'll take your money. But you think you're mad. Does it make sense? Well, that's what we're doing. It's been paid. Jesus paid it all. You're supposed to back it up from there, man. I need to find a new congregation. It's paid in full. Not 90%, not 60%, 100% and more. So what are you paying exactly? 
I remember when I was in Uganda back in 2018, or when we came back to the capital city, and I met this Mormon lady. We're staying in the same kind of hostel. And we you know, got to talking, being friends. She was from the States, and she was doing some mission stuff there as well. Then I found out she's a Mormon, and I thought, opportunity. So the last evening, I remember we sat down. We had something like probably two or three hours just talking. And here's part of the little things they believe. She believed, or they believed, that you are to try as much as you can. All your effort, as much as you can. And of course, we're not perfect, she agreed with that. So whatever's left over, Jesus tops it up. Seriously, that's what she believed. And I said to her, nope. Jesus paid it all. Everything. If I contribute or you contribute any part to it, then like the Apostle Paul said, then you can boast. But what does Paul say? So that no man can boast. It's all grace through faith. Amen? And we've seen this already, haven't we? Paul writes, you know, Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Trampling the blood again. He goes on again, doesn't he? In chapter, in chapter 3. Um, the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. We're going to come to this later on. You're obligated if you want to live by the law. You've got to fulfill everything. Don't wait for Jesus to top you up. No, you've got to be 100%. But your problem is, your very nature disqualifies you because you're a sinner. You're born in sin. And you're bound in sin and nature's night. It's not the sin you commit that makes you a sinner. It's the fact you are a sinner is what makes you sin. And what the guys in Hebrews was pretty much also saying is this. We hear you, God, um, but you know what? We don't want this kind of a saviour. We want to be able to go back in time and reset and we want a different kind of Messiah. We want a Messiah of our own making that we can reimagine, we can imagine. And it goes on today. You see people, their understanding of Jesus is a Jesus of their own making, a Jesus of their own imagination, not the biblical Jesus. Everybody wants to reimagine Jesus. Jesus will not be reimagined by anyone. We want a Jesus that fits our desire, our lusts, our wants. But you see, if you reimagine Jesus, it ain't Jesus. If you reimagine the gospel, it ain't the gospel. And this is what Paul meant in chapter 3. Um, he speaks on verse 19, chapter 3, says, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, unto the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. 
and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. All of these things which the people on the Hebrews are addressing didn't fully understand and acknowledge that all these things were pointed to Christ. He's the fulfillment. He's the amen of God's promises. Everything finds fulfillment in him. So if he's not sufficient and enough, you've got nothing. And it goes on in that same chapter 3, in verse 23. Now before faith comes, now you just want, you see, the offspring issue that Paul raises is very significant. When Paul talks about not offsprings as in many, but one, saying it was all pointed to Christ. The same Christ they didn't want. So verse 23 says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Revealed how? Read on. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Paul writes in Philippians 3, we are those who boast in Christ. He goes so far as to call dogs those who boast in themselves. He says, you're dogs. He says, but a Christian is not that. The Christian is the person who makes their boast in Christ. So the Apostle Paul, you've been running well, who hindered you? Well, let's find out who hindered them. Let's just consider as we, the title of this morning's sermon in our Galatians series is keep running well. And that's our encouragement to you this morning. Keep running well. Don't let error, false teaching, hinder you. Pull you back. Drag you off the track. Keep running well. So first of all, this passage we're considering in chapter 5, from verse 2 to verse 12, is in two main parts. I'm going to use that as a guide this morning. The first part of verse 2 to 6 is a reminder of how they started the race. Paul reminds them how they started the race. The Christian is justified by faith and not by the law. Never forget that. And I won't grow tired of reminding you that. The Christian is justified by faith and not the observance of the law. It doesn't change. Yesterday, as I was preparing the sermon, um, Tolu, thank you my brother, takes time to teach my oldest son, Isaiah, maths. So I'm, I'm, I'm sitting there trying to study and I heard from the other room Tolu saying to Isaiah, Isaiah, it doesn't change. Now they were doing long divisions because we all love long divisions, right? Amen, everyone, yeah? We love long divisions. And you know, with long divisions, you've got all the different levels, right? Parents, guardians, thank me later that this morning, we're going to do a lot of mess. And I'm going to help your children with long divisions. Even you will never forget this. So, you know, you're going for each level, right? So, I heard Tolu shout or say loudly from the other room. He says, Isaiah, it doesn't change. It's the same. And he, and he goes on and he was saying, divide, multiply, subtract. 
divide, multiply, subtract. The first level, you divide, multiply, subtract. Next level, you divide, multiply, subtract. Next level, you do what? Pay me later. You divide, you multiply, subtract. How you start is how you go on. Guess what? In the Christian race, how you started is how you go on. You see, the faith that saved you is the same faith that sustains you. The grace that saved you, you are saved by, is the same grace that sustains you. It doesn't change. It doesn't change. Divide, multiply, subtract. Repeat. That's it. And the same applies for us. It doesn't change. You go on the way you started. So as we come to this first part of our passage this morning... We transition from the freedom slavery language that we've been seeing so far. In a, in, if you, you can go back and listen to the messages on our YouTube channel or read the chapters before. He changes from the freedom slavery analogy language and now it comes to using the law, faith, and spirit language. The law, faith, and spirit language. And we'll see more of this developing. Um, as we go on through chapter 5 and chapter 6. And the portion of scripture is concluding the apostle's argument, which he started, if you remember, in chapter 3. So, if you look at the way he started that chapter 3, it's like, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? Who's bewitched you? And he concludes the portion with with similar language here. We'll see in a few minutes. And he concluded... This portion, remember in chapter 5 verse 1, we read these words. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Now pay attention to this. He then says, stand firm therefore. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And those, that last sentence, stand firm therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery, is what Paul, over the next two, three, verse 2, 3, and 4, is going to flesh out for us. So first of all, let us consider and unpack verses 2 to 4. Paul gives this loving warning to these guys in Galatia. And we'll be very quick over it, because it's going to be a quick sermon this morning. So verse 2, in fact, there are three things he warns them about. Three things he warns them about. Verse 2, he warns them, Christ will be of no benefit to them. Christ will be of no benefit to them. Why? Look at the verse, it says, look. And none of that. It's calling their attention. Look, listen, pay attention. I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision... Christ will be of no advantage to you. What's the point? Christ died in vain. If you've got to get circumcised and all the other things, then what's the point of Christ? Christ benefits you nothing. It's pointless. There is no gain. There is no point. His cross was in vain. It has no significance, no purpose. So Christ will be of no benefit to them. Verse 3. They will need to obey 
the whole law, all of the law. And we've seen this already, haven't we? In chapter 3, Paul tells them, you will be obligated to keep the whole law. In chapter 3, he said, um, but the law is not, verse, uh, verse 12, but the law is not of faith, rather, the one who does them shall live by them. And how are you made righteous by the law? You must obey it 100%. But even more, you must change your, who you are by nature. And both of those things are impossible. So Christ will be of no benefit to you. If this is the line you want to pursue. If you want to be by the law, justified by the law. Christ is no benefit to you. You've got to obey the whole law. But thirdly, verse 4. And this is, this is a terrible warning. And it's severe. They will be cut off from grace. If you're cut off from grace, that means you stand under the judgment and the wrath of God. Cut off from grace. Cut off from all the blessings of God. You're cut off from the... In other words, if you're in the Old Testament, we'll say you are cut off from the covenant people of God. And that was damnation. That's a curse. So rejection of faith in Christ alone means you lose all the benefits that comes from believing in Christ and Christ alone. It means that you have to try and produce your own righteousness. And thirdly, you remain damned. That's not a pretty picture. That's a terrible picture. But Paul tells them, this is what you subject yourself to if you reject salvation by faith alone in Christ. But then he returns to his exhortation. Stand firm. Stand, stand firm. Look at verse 5 to 6. Verse 5 to 6 reads, For through the Spirit by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You know what's so beautiful about this, these verses? Verse 5. Look at verse 5 closely. See, Christians have secure expectation of being justified on the final day. You and I have a secure expectation of being justified on the final day. That means no fear of judgment. No fear of the wrath of God being placed upon you. You don't have to answer for anything. That should give you comfort and confidence in your living now. Do you see? The Apostle Paul is making the point that through the Spirit and through their faith, a faith that produces works pleasing to God. You see that? Our, faith, our salvation is not dependent upon our works, but rather as a result of our salvation, through the Spirit, we produce, and faith, we produce works pleasing unto the Lord. Paul repeats himself in all his letters. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 to 13. Work out your salvation with what? Fear and trembling. Verse 13. But it is God who works in you 
both to will and to do for his good pleasure. It's a work of God and God alone. Salvation is an initiative of God and of God alone. Put another way, here's what we're saying in verse 5. This is beautiful. This is beautiful. God has already delivered the verdict of the final day in our present life. Let me repeat that. God has already delivered the verdict of the final day in our present life. And here's the verdict for the Christian. Are you ready? Not guilty. Not guilty. You should rejoice. Not guilty. You will not face on the final day guilty. But hear the words you will hear. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Because you're good and you smell of roses? No, because of the person and the finished work of Christ. We can add nothing. Like we sung earlier on, heaven has no more to give. But look at this stanza, the last stanza of that wonderful hymn, one of my favorite hymns by Charles Wesley. And can it be? Love this hymn. Jestic hymn. And in that hymn, we read these words. No condemnation now I dread. Echoes Romans chapter 1, right? Therefore, there's no condemnation for those who are workers of the law. Amen? Therefore, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, so no condemnation now I dread. Jesus and some of him is mine. Now, I'm, I'm purposely being annoying and silly because we need to flip things because we're so familiar. Familiarity builds contempt for things. We're so familiar with these things, we don't stop to, we don't stop to ponder, we sing it, but we don't stop to think about it. Jesus and all in him is mine. But Paul says, if you reject this salvation by faith alone, Jesus benefits you nothing. For those who place their faith in Christ alone, you can sing these words, Jesus and all in him is mine. Dead in him. My dead head. What does Paul say in Galatians 2.20? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in my works. I know I'm being silly. Bear with me. You need to hear it. Hear what it says. By faith in the Son of God. Alive in Him. Why? Because you were once dead in your trespasses and sins. You're a zombie, the walking dead. But alive in Him. My living head. He's the source of your life, the head. Everything comes and flows through him. And look at this. And clothed in righteousness divine. A rejection of this truth 
is an affront and an insult to the cross of Christ. You see, church, we can't be clothed any more than what we've been clothed already. You can't add any more clothing. There's nothing more to add to it. Stop paying the bond. It's paid and clothed in righteousness divine is what he's saying when he says in verse 5, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. You can also substitute that for, in other words, we're justified already. God, in his divine court, has declared us not guilty. This is our joy. And verse 6, Paul wonderfully summarizes the central theological truth of all he's been saying from chapter 2, verse 16, up to chapter 4, verse 17. Justification is by faith. But he also emphasizes the spirit and love, and he does this in anticipation of what is, we're going to see God willing from next week, from, chap, from verse 13 of chapter 5 through to chapter 6. Church, we don't need any more clothing. We are clothed with righteousness divine. We are already clothed with all will ever need. We are covered. And the thing is this, God, hear this truth, God sees you as perfect as you're sitting there today in those pews. And if you are truly in Christ, despite your faults and issues, the word of God, the spirit of God declares over you today that he sees you as perfect. I don't care what your wife says. I don't care what your husband says. I don't care what your parents say. Jesus has declared you not guilty. I love it when my wife and I, sometimes I have, I have an old tiff. It's like, you sinner. I'm like, praise Jesus. Why? Because sometimes she's right. Sometimes she's right. Now, all the time, sometimes she's right. What's my plea? Praise Jesus. That's your plea too. And since we've been very mathematical this morning, you see, we are covered and we are perfect as we are and you can add nothing. You see, being circumcised adds nothing to you. That's the point Paul is making. Ooh, but I'm circumcised. Great, adds nothing to you. But if it be more mathematical, here's a quote from J.I. Packer. J.I. Packer said this, In gospel mass, in gospel mass, addition is subtraction. Let me repeat that. In gospel mass, addition is subtraction. I love that quote because it wonderfully put, um, conveys Paul's point. If you add to the gospel, Christ benefits you nothing. You're a loser. You're a loser. Our second point, moving swiftly on to verse 7 to verse 12. Paul now turns his focus away from the Galatians and the message to the false teachers themselves. These false teachers that have um, introduced um, a legalistic system of righteousness. 
They are told Christians to rely on their obedience to the law rather than the person and the finished work of Christ. May I apologize to Aunt Margaret in advance, but it's a wonderful illustration and I hope it gives you comfort as well and joy. During the last three months with Uncle Athol, I remember again and again how after visiting him, I would say, Uncle Athol, in whom is your confidence resting? And would say, in Jesus Christ and what he's done for me. And that should be all our cry. Your confidence rests in the person and the finished work of Christ. In the person and the finished work of Christ. Nothing else but that. So here Paul exhorts or encourages the Galatians to resist the false teachers. Let's look a bit more closely. So we see in verse 7b to verse 8, the agitators, Paul tells us, are unworthy and should not be listened to. They are in fact, Paul tells us, under condemnation. Don't listen to them. Don't give them time. Because they're dangerous. Resist them. Paul tells us they hinder Christians from running the race, from obeying the truth, and that they are not of Christ. Very important. A person that's teaching heresy is not a messenger of Christ. He's not a preacher of Christ. They're dangerous people. This is why sometimes we name some of these people for you as examples so that you may know how to discern rightly. And the best way is to teach you what the truth is. You all know how they test money. I mean, it's a, it's a well-known anecdote. When they're teaching money, people, sorry, teaching people how to spot fake money, they never show them all the different kinds of fake money out there. Rather, the time is spent teaching people what the real thing looks like feels and smells like so if it looks different to the real McCoy you can know it's fake it's false that's why we have all the Bible studies and Bible teachers and sermons that we do that you may know the truth so when you hear something different it should raise a red flag for you so Paul says these people he says that this persuasion is not from him who calls you. It's not from him who calls you. Because him who called you, called you differently. It didn't start this way. Paul reminds them, hey, remember when he's in chapter, um, chapter 3, when he says, you know, you foolish Galatians. In fact, Galatians 3 verse 3. It says, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And the point Paul is making is, you didn't start this, so why do you think you're going to finish it? It wasn't started by you. It was all the work of God. So why is it now you think you can finish it? And then he goes on about their doctrine, their teaching, that it's dangerous, verse 9. And it speaks about the leaven 
Now, we've had a whole sermon on 11 recently, haven't we? Thank you, Pastor Louis. Very interesting, but it's important. In fact, in the New Testament, leaven, by and large, is seen as a negative thing. Not always, because in Matthew chapter 13, verse 33, in speaking about the effect of the kingdom, leaven is seen as positive. And the point is, that's been conveyed, is the effect that whether good or bad teaching has a profound effect on those to whom um, on, on those who are concerned. But to show you why it's important that we don't give a foothold to false teaching, to heresies and these things, we need to understand. Don't see it as just a small thing. It's very important that we, we identify it and we obliterate it and we reject it. So Paul says, hey, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. If you remember, Pastor Lou was telling us, you need to understand how yeast was dealt with in those days. So you get a portion of a leavened um, dough or bread, and you would add it to the dough of the bread you're about to bake. And you only need a little piece, and that would now have a fermenting effect upon the new batch of dough. And the point is this, something so small can have such a far-reaching effect. In fact, shepherds, we under shepherds of Christ, pastors and, and elders, are called to be shepherds who are alert and awake and protecting the sheep from ravenous wolves, Acts chapter 20. When Paul was saying goodbye to the Ephesian um, elders, he warns them about such things, that they should be alert, they should be vigilant. That right from their own midst, false teachers would arise who would not spare the flock. Ravenous wolves who would devour the flock. And these were the kind of people Paul was warning them against. Bad or false teaching spreads fast. Paul is in effect saying, it takes only one wrong person among you to infect the others. And I've seen this in, in various congregations where one person or one family actually ruin, split, undermine a whole congregation. So we have to be vigilant. And Paul is telling them, this is so important. Guard against these guys. But then in verse 10, verse 10b says, but don't worry, they will be judged. They will receive their judgment. They'll receive the right, their penalty. And it's a warning. We see this in James chapter 3 as well. Those of us who are called to preach the gospel, who are called to be ministers of the word, are given a great responsibility. But at the same time, we are warned. Do not take the responsibility lightly. Because you will be held accountable. But you know what? Not just us pastors, all of you, all of us. If you are involved in false teaching, spreading false teaching, and especially if it's pointed out to you and you do not repent, you will be held liable. But then Paul goes on and says, but don't worry. Paul says, I'm confident. Look at that. I have confidence, verse 10, in the Lord that you would take no other view. 
You would take an overview. Why, why, why is Paul so confident? What is behind Paul's confidence? Because Paul is confident the Galatians will agree with him and maintain the good gospel cause that they already started on. Why is Paul confident? You see, with this point, Paul brings the Galatians back to the point that he had made earlier in the beginning of Galatians chapter 3, verse 1 to 6. And I've read verse 3 out to you already. But why is Paul confident of this? The reason is this. Because Paul knows that their sanctification, their Christian life, is not dependent on them. But like he's been saying all along, that their Christian walk is dependent upon the promise that flows from the person and the finished work of Christ. That's why I wrote to the Philippians and said, that he who started a good work in you will do what? Bring it to completion. God does not dump the Christian halfway. But that which he started, he shall also complete. Let's bring all of this together as we close. So earlier on, we read this last stanza from And Can It Be? No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. But it doesn't stop there, does it? It goes on to say, Bold I approach the eternal throne. You see, because of what Christ has done, It gives me confidence in the life that I'm living now. To know that it is well with my soul. It is well between my maker and myself. And because of that, I can live. I can worship God. It starts by worship. I get to worship God. Not as an outsider, but as a child of God. Adopted into the family, redeemed, cleansed, delivered. No penalty, no judgment. Because the verdict of the final day has already been delivered on me, not guilty. So bold I approach. Because once upon a time, you could not approach. If you try to approach, you die. And while many are alive today and not dead, the time will come when they will approach the throne of God and they will receive condemnation. But you and I, because of what Jesus has done, because of that completed work, bold I approach. Approach what? The eternal throne founded upon righteousness and justice. The throne of God, where ordinary man cannot approach, sinful man cannot approach. But now, I don't just get to approach, but boldly, confidently, because of the spirit that lives in me. Not only do I cry, almighty God, but I get to cry, Abba, bold I approach the eternal throne and do what? 
and claim the crown through Christ. I love this last two words. My, this is my blessing. Christ benefits me. There's profit in Christ for those who trust in Christ and Christ alone. But if you're trusting in your own works, you cannot claim this crown. Christ profits you nothing. Church, let us settle this in our minds. It is finished. The bond has been paid. The price has been paid. The penalty has been satisfied. If you seek a way by which you can add to the gospel, you are the biggest loser. Church, to place your confidence in anything or anyone other than the person and the finished work of Christ, the Son of God, is not only futile, but it's an affront and an insult to Jesus Christ himself. Church, rest in Christ. Rest from your labors of self-righteousness and receive the righteousness that comes from God and God alone. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. As we're reminded this morning through the scripture of our need for you. We can do nothing without you. Thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ that has saved sinners like ourselves. Thank you that it pleased you to reveal your son to us. And Lord, maybe we will be reminded that as we started the race, that we must continue in the same vein. For by grace we have been saved through faith. And it doesn't change along the road. But help us to keep running the race. To run and to run. Look into Christ and Christ alone. And should we stumble to look to Christ? Should the road be dark to look to Christ? To always, ever keep looking to Him and Him alone. In His matchless name we pray. Amen.